Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's issue of Chess Life magazine. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or subscribe via Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Our guest on this April edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life is Tom Beckman, who wrote the story about the 2019 Eastern Open. Tom has been leading the Eastern Open since 2009. He has made some notable innovations in the tournament's format, including the special, sectional, and the tournament book prizes, chess lecture, simuls, and the action tourney. Tom has over 50 years' experience playing in chess tournaments with a peak rating of 2285 FIDE and 2225 US Chess. He has authored a number of opening booklets and articles for Chess Life, and his opening analysis and coaching has influenced several strong players. Finally, Tom has developed a teaching curriculum and method that has been effective with his students over the years. The highlight of many of these lessons are 15-minute games that are annotated and reviewed at subsequent lessons. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, Tom Beckman. Hi there. How are you all doing? Do you want to, do you want to talk about the, uh, the Eastern Open first? Since sure. Let, let, let's get straight into the Eastern Open. How, how long has it been around and what makes it special? And anything you think the reader, our listeners will find of interest? Well, it, uh, it's been around for on and off for 40, well, at least 46 years since it was 46th uh, <laughs> Eastern Open. Uh, and uh, it, it, for many years, it, it was, there, there were, well, back in, back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, there weren't that many tournaments. So, uh, Eastern Open was uh, a big tournament, as was the Atlantic Open on the East Coast, and both would typically draw over 200 players, which back then was really exceptional. Now, now it's not so exceptional. Um, and um, I was very fortunate uh, to be able to take over the uh, the running of the tournament. Um, uh, David Mailer. Uh, had run the Eastern Open with great success for, I, I guess, almost 20 years. Uh, and he decided to hand off the tournament to somebody, but uh, who? He decided that I would be a good choice, but first he wanted to check with Goitschberg. So he did, and when Bill gave his endorsement, I became the organizer and executive director of the Eastern Open, which was uh, quite quite a great thing. I really... I really uh, appreciated David uh, doing this, and, and he was uh, so generous. In the first year um, that that I was uh, running it, I really wasn't running it. He he was still running it along with uh, Mike Atkins, and uh, but he he was there at the tournament, supported me uh, by giving me advice, gave me mailing lists. I remember we, we, in the first year we had about 140 advance entries. And frankly, I was worried that because I, this time, had guaranteed all $13,000 in prizes, as uh, Mailer had always done before, 
And so, you know, I was thinking, hmm, I, I calculated somewhere the break-even point was around 180 entries. So, so there we are on the first day, and, and it was in the day back then. It was, a, it was still an eight-round tournament, so it started in, in the uh, late morning, around noon, maybe. Uh, so we were sitting in the registration room along with TD Mike Atkins around 9 a.m. And over the next two hours, there was almost always a line of players waiting to register and pay. I was like, you should have seen the size of my smile. And and Mike kept throwing checks and cash under the laptop computer until it became unstable. There must have been almost two inches worth of of <laughs> of, of of checks and cash under there. So then I suggested that we throw all the proceeds into a day pack, which we did. And and by the end uh, of registration, we'd taken in another 88 entries, which set the all-time high or equaled it for the Eastern Open. David just smiled. Anyway, so that was a, an absolutely stunning beginning to, to my uh, uh, leadership, if you will, of the Eastern Open. Well, come 2010, and oh, this is really fun. Uh, this is the year we had eight inches of snow. So, brimming with confidence in the second year, advanced entries were only about 100 instead of 140, and I was really getting worried. Um, then, eight inches of snow fell with more up north uh, several days before the tournament started. So, we only had about 120 entries in total, and, and I lost more than all the profits in the previous year. So, so that, um, that woke me up. Uh, and so, in the third year, 2011, uh, I decided on a few changes. Uh, the first change I instituted was to protect me from any more such losses uh, by only guaranteeing the prizes in the open section. So the prizes in the other four sections were based on 40 paid entries. And this actually proven to be a fairer approach um, to reduce section prize funds that when the section failed to produce enough entries. Uh, and it's it's actually been, it's been good for me because it, it kind of, uh, levels off, um, you know, any any uh, any any other disastrous uh, na nature, natural or otherwise, uh, you know, events that could happen. Um, the next change I I made was based on my experience as a player. David had five sections at 300 point intervals with prizes for the best finishers in each section. However, this meant that due to the vagaries of your of your rating you might be at the bottom of a class section with no chance for a prize. So in 2011, I came up with an idea to, to, for prizes for the most improved player based on their tournament performance rating. However, it turned out that this just rewarded underrated players primarily, and, and it wasn't such a good solution. So in 2012, I introduced uh, decent cash uh, prizes at 150-point intervals with each within each of those 300 points uh, different sections. This gave the players at the bottom half of a chance uh, of the section a chance to win some money. And this has proved very popular. And um, surprisingly to me, uh, no, nobody else like Gorchberg has really adopted this. Um, but at any rate, <laughs> so I, um, I had some other ideas. Uh, and I, I just also came up with the idea of upset prizes for any given round. So the, the uh, in each section, the uh, the uh, biggest upset prize would would win you uh, fifty dollars or twenty five dollars. So even if you're having a so-so tourney, tournament, 
you can still win some prize money by having the largest upset based on rating differential withdrawals, counting for half of the rating difference. When we announce the winners, it's always great fun to see the looks on a young winner and the vanquished looks. <laughs> I, I, I did limit the number of prizes to two for any individual in case they were just vastly underrated. Um, more, more recently, I went to awarding, uh, instead of awarding cash, I awarded uh, book prizes. And one, one other change that I made pretty early on uh, was to have no or reduced entry fees for, for all FIDE title players. So even, although the, the forgiven entry fee is taken out of any prize. And this actually did increase the number of strong players in the open section. And it worked really quite well until this year when we had no GMs and no IMs. Uh, and the only time I, that I didn't uh, recapture the entry fee was when, uh, when Alex Shabalov went 7-0 a few years ago, which was truly an amazing result. I think there was only one other time in 46 years when when a uh, player went uh, had no had no draws <laughs> that would went the winner. You you saying you had no GMs or IMs this year. You you've had a good history of attracting uh title players to the event. What what do you think happened in uh 2019? Well, I I can tell you I know that uh, one thing that happened was Alex Lenderman uh, got a a full scholarship to uh, Webster University in St. Louis, so he was uh um uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, he was going to play in the Pan, Pan American Championships rather than in the Eastern Open, which is almost always held simultaneously. So that that was one one player, but but it, it was odd because I I actually thought after the first round in the evening that you know players some some strong players might look and say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> there's no GMs in or here I am. So this is, it, I, and I I literally thought you know I I start start calling people, but I said no, no let's see let's see what happens. And and surprisingly, nobody else decided to come in. So um, it's not clear whether they could have withstood uh, making Shabbat in this particular year, but <laughs> but but nonetheless. Uh, it was just a, an anomaly, I think. I, I don't really have an, a decent explanation. So who have been some of the, uh, besides Lunderman, who have been some of the notable uh, GMs and IMs that have uh, attended the Eastern Open over the years? Yes. Well, uh, actually, Alex Lunderman first played, I think it was in the second year in 2010 or 11, uh, and when he wasn't, he was a GM elect. And actually, we've become uh, good friends uh, since then. And, uh, yeah, he's played most years except, uh, one or two when he either decided to play out at the North American championships in, in Vegas or, or that he had something else he, he was committed to doing. Uh, and then we've had, uh, of course, Alex Shabalov has, has come, uh, a majority of the last six or seven years and he's done uh, terrifically well. In fact, I guess you'd say, uh, the two of the two Alex's, uh, um, Alex Lenderman's uh, nemesis has been Alex Shabalov because uh, he typically in their in their matchup games uh, uh, Shabalov's come, come out came out uh, come out on top. Well, we also had um, well uh, Gregory uh, Kaidenov came uh, one year. Just he did he didn't pre-register. He just kind of came in and and uh, took it all. Uh, it was quite a surprise uh, and uh, quite a surprise to Alex Ivanov who who was doing quite well. Uh, in in uh, you know in competition in in earlier years. In fact, I think Alex Ivanov might have won it uh, probably the most most years of anybody. But I I really have to check on that. And then we've had uh, you know a number of uh, local IMs and uh, 
uh, you know, like, uh, well, let's see. Well, actually, well, let's let, let's just say that um, that well, well, that's right. Oh, Sergey Ehrenberg uh, was actually he played for quite a few years. Then he moved up to uh, Philadelphia, and that made it more problematic for him. So, uh, so you know, I, it's just um, it. I think that the problem is is over the uh, Christmas New Year breaks there that. Um, Families and you know and players have commitments that are not nothing to do with chess, and so their their um, ability to play or, or their interest in playing it kind of waxes and wanes. It's not like it's a you know like a, a given weekend in the year uh, where it's not you don't have many family family obligations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, the articles that you've written for Chess Life, not just about this year's event, but many of the previous year events. I, I, I may have told you this when you first approached me about writing uh, about the Eastern Open, but we, we generally don't like organizers to be the article authors because it's hard for an organizer to have the necessary journalistic distance. But you've done you've done pretty good, and I think that's mainly because you focus very strongly on the games and the annotations. And the way you annotate is interesting to me. You, you often will work with the uh, the titled player and both of your annotations are appearing side by side in the notes. Uh, what what attracted you to that particular style, or was it just a natural development for you? Well, I, I want to say that that, that uh, chess, U.S. Chess, Chess Life has been you've been very generous in publishing a number of my articles about the Eastern Open over, Eastern Open over the years. Um, well, um, obviously, I don't have the uh, the strength and the capacity to compete in annotations with any grandmaster. But a little story. This is in about the fifth year and maybe the first year I submitted an article that was published in Chess Life. And I think it was an IM from Florida against, uh, I think it was Larry Kaufman. And I... Did not at that time. I wasn't checking the games over with a computer, and the computers weren't as strong. Um, and so, uh, when I did so several months later, to to my surprise and and <laughs> kind of embarrassment, uh, there were some rather large errors in in the annotations <laughs> for for the for the, uh, the key game. You know, the 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 winner of the tournament's game with Larry Kaufman. And so ever since then, I've been, I've been using uh, primarily Stockfish uh, to do the analyses, and that's that's the only reason. And I try to be very careful, even even so, uh, you, you know, letting the computer run quite a quite a long time on on various positions, and then you know, even there, trying to trying to not not say very much because obviously um, my, my thoughts aren't as good as a, as a GM's or an IM's. Uh, but but it's it's turned out to, to work pretty well and uh, and I am an opening freak uh, literally and and so I I, I prepare lots of repertoires uh, on various openings for my students or, or for myself and um, and basically Stockfish is running twenty four seven on analyzing whatever opening I have happen to be throwing up there and whatever variation. So, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced. And, and I also, I, I, I do buy all the, the latest books on, on whatever opening that is, is relevant. So, 
Um, working between those on the openings, at least, I feel pretty confident when I'm commenting, making those comments. Later in the game, I, unless unless I see something that really looks like um, there's a problem, I, I don't I don't say much. I, and another thing that happened, um, the very first year that I was offering the special prizes, um, it was suggested to me uh, quite reasonably that I that I have a grandmaster. Uh, deciding the prizes rather than myself. And so it happened to be that um, Alex Lenderman uh, was, he was rooming with me and, and he offered to do it. And so I said, fine. And so he was going to actually, he was, he, he had, he had sort of analyzed his game uh, that, that he was successful and, and he was going to put it up for, for one of the prizes. And they said, you know, maybe I should check it with the computer. So he checked it with the computer and he found a number of holes. And so he, he said, you know what? This is, this is a, this is a very uh, interesting. Um, so, so basically, uh, I, since then I, I've checked everything with the computer. So I, you know, and, and that's how I, I, I went out, went down the, the, I, I usually get, well, this, this year I had goodness about, 30 games submitted for either the best best uh, played game, uh, best fighting spirit, uh, brilliancy, and or opening innovations. And it, it took me quite a while. I, usually, it's there'll be some games that just stand out. They're just you know just really fantastic games. And uh, like uh, Shabalov Lenderman from a few years ago, that was that was truly. In it in a draw, and that was a truly amazing game. And I, and, and that, the other thing I like to do, as you probably noticed, is to uh, try to get the players to annotate their thoughts uh, that they had during the game, and then you know, and and, and uh, perhaps some, some afterthoughts. And and that's worked out really well. It, it led to some really really fun uh, uh, cases where one grandmaster saw things the other didn't see. You know, and it was. <laughs> So it was, it was really fascinating that, that you get to see an insight into their thought processes. So w- when you say you're a freak on openings, w- what is it about the openings that, that attracts you so much as opposed to middle game or in games or tactics, et cetera? Wow, that's a great question. You know, what, <laughs> uh, why do I breathe? Um, let's see. <laughs> but, uh, I guess it's the, I guess, I guess because it's analytical and I, I enjoy that part of it. Um, that that there is some sense of, um, huh? That's a, yeah. It really is interesting. I, uh, maybe it's something that I feel like I have more control over, and, and never having you know been that strong a player, that um, that I could prepare uh, better than than my opponent, and thereby get an you know get an advantage relatively in the opening. And, uh, you know, perhaps survive <laughs> the remaining, uh, moves to, uh, draw against a, a very strong player, you know, or, or prevail against equal players. And, and that actually, I guess that's the main motivation, um, that it, and, and, and even today, uh, it's amazing, uh, how, in my opinion, how, uh, the opening preparation, uh, isn't, as thought thought is as important as well now I, you know I'm not saying it should be but uh, perhaps as, as as it is and of course Linderman has said uh, that you know uh, today anybody who's aspiring to be a super GM or you know a strong GM you've got to have incredible opening analysis and preparation and and also you know going into the middle game 
and that it, you know, computers have basically changed the, the nature of the game, which is, is pretty, I guess, pretty obvious. Uh, and, um, so I, I'm sort of ahead of that, if you, if you will, that, that I, I enjoyed that aspect of it and, and the ability to, to prepare in advance. And then, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the thrill of, of playing at a super GM level for the first 10, 15 moves, and then things start uh, quickly decaying, <laughs> decaying after that. <laughs> Do you think you have a particularly good memory uh, for for variations and such, or is it for you? Is it more uh, you you learn the openings deeply enough that you understand the principles and can and that that's what leads to the move memory? Ah, uh, yes. Um, my memory is only so so. So um, fortunately, I've, I've been maybe it's better than I'm giving it credit for. Sometimes it's really good, um, but. Uh, it fades. If I haven't looked at something in, in six months to a year, um, you know, I, I don't even, I don't remember, I may, may not even remember games that I played in that variation very well. So, so it's not, it's not that. And, and I usually only, only are able to make, uh, conclusions about, you know, where the pieces belong in some of these openings or when, when the move should be, you know, the move should be played only, uh, after doing a lot of analysis, has it become more clear to me? So uh, I don't know what to say. I, I, I have a feeling that my choice of um, I, I used to play the Nidorf a, a long time ago, and and even before that, I played the Dragon Sicilian, and um, I got blown up a few times playing the Dragon Sicilian when a you know a strong expert, a weak master, found it, it may not have been an absolute innovation, but over the board, it was just uh, unbeatable innovation. So I, I gave up the Dragon because of that, and then I gave it to Nidorf because, well, similar to the Dragon in a way, you have to play almost perfectly uh, to get the desired result as black. <laughs> and and that's you know that's pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. And so then I picked, took up the French, which is super solid, and I had reasonably good results. And then I finally got... Uh, kind of uh, dissatisfied with it. So um, I actually flipped back to the uh, Dragon for the uh, last year's World Open, and I had a wonderful game against uh, 11-year-old Jaden Lee, in which case we played theory down to about 19 moves, and I looked it up later, and and, and, uh, Gawain Jones' fantastic uh, Dragon books, uh, two-volume set, and um turns out I actually found an improvement over over his analysis in there, which was pretty cool uh, but uh but most of the time you know and and then i i sort of that i was finding that was taking a huge amount of time for me to keep reviewing and keeping up my memory on on all the variations so so i went i now i'm doing the uh, either the Kalishnikov or Sveshnikov sicilian and um looking it's it's looking really good i mean it, it it's the kind of opening that i enjoy it you know it's it's uh very sharp and, and just uh, very interesting. Anyway, I kind of dragged off the the question. I'm afraid. No, you, I I think you you it was a natural evolution in your answer. That was fine. But <clears throat> excuse me, and you 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 teased me in our email exchange by saying that you assisted one leading GM on his preparation for the U.S. Championship and the World Cup, but you didn't tell me who. Uh, are you at liberty to say? Um. I'd rather not say only because I didn't get his permission to say. So, uh, yeah. So I, he actually, it was, it was really interesting. Uh, d- between rounds, I guess we're, 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 I forget where it was held a couple of years ago. It was in Turkey, I guess. I was getting these emails from, from him, uh, 
to uh, ask me some questions. Could I prepare this, that, or the other? Uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, wow, this is what this is. You know, all my chess experiences that had to be one of the one of the greatest highlights, frankly. <laughs> okay, well, I won't put you on the spot, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make a little bit of a guess uh, in that you you indicated earlier in this episode uh, that one GM that you've become friendly with. And I know that that GM has played in the world, in the U.S. Championship and the World Cup. So I'm going to guess it's that person. But I'm not going to put you on the spot. That 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 would that would be correct. <laughs> oh. That's definitely correct. Oh, okay. Well, good. So can I say the name now? Sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, it was Alexander uh, Linderman. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not usually very good at detective work, so I'm I'm pleased that I was successful here. <laughs> okay. I I, I I don't think he'll mind. Um, and you know, and it was just. I mean, he he's he's been so gracious and and given me uh, thoughts about openings to play or variations I should consider. So you know, <laughs> I've I've been more than repaid for for what you know what minor things I was able to to help. With. I mean, you know, he has uh, his coach uh, Georgi Kachashvili, Kachashvili, who's really uh, uh, a guru uh, for him on on the openings, and I'm sure helps him prepare. In fact, uh, he. Against the Iranian uh, world champ, um, what do you call it? Um, youth world champion. Um, he uh, he actually played the Taimanov uh, Sicilian, which was he'd never played before in his life, and he got a great game out of that. So uh, obviously, a lot of psychology involved in you know in picking picking the right time to play a, a variation or an opening. So yeah, and uh, in fact, uh, the fact is, I'm playing the the Ragozin system against uh, the Queen Pawn, uh, double Queen Pawn, and that's uh, that's due to Alex. Uh, he suggested it, and uh, I've done a lot of done a lot of uh, analysis there. Okay. Funny thing, I've only had one game with it in the last four years, so, or three four years. So <laughs> it's kind of like. Uh, you prepare all this good stuff, and then uh, by the time somebody actually allows you to play it, you've forgotten half of what your analysis was. <laughs> um, so I do have some other questions for you about about your chess life and how chess has enriched your life. But before we do that, I want to get into our best question contest, which is sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales. The official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation, U.S. Chess Sales, is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and we'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. Now, our the question I've selected as the best question comes from uh, women's international master Dr. Alexi Root, uh, former U.S. women's champion and friend of the show. And Alexi, you are gathering enough of these fifty dollars gift certificates that I think I may have to send you a ten ninety nine this year. <laughs> but thank you for con- thank you for continuing to send in these questions. And before I read her question, I, I should mention we're recording this on April first, although the show is. Uh, dropping on April 7th, and we're all in the midst of uh, coronavirus social distancing and uh, shelter-in-place orders. So that's kind of the context for Alexi's question, which is, how do you as an organizer protect yourself financially against cancellations? Coronavirus caused so many cancellations, and the time of year of your annual Eastern Open might mean cancellations due to winter storms. So, Tom, how, how do you protect yourself? 
Well, thank, thanks to uh, Chess Life and, and the, uh, the, the the TLA, the Tournament Life announcements, and the the rules there. Uh, you've been you you were very wise in uh, allowing uh, prizes to be unless they're guaranteed, allowing prizes to be reduced to fifty uh, up to fifty percent of of the uh, the announced uh, prize fund, and that is very very helpful. In reducing losses uh, to to uh, catastrophic catastrophic events like this uh, from the coronavirus, um, I, I in terms of long term how we're going to deal with this um, in holding chess tournaments, this is uh, a, a real conundrum because frankly I'm I'm worried for Bill Goichberg not being able to put on the uh, the World Open or maybe having to delay it uh, to sometime later in the year. I mean, who knows? Um, I, I don't have, uh, that, I, you know, it's really hard for me to, to look out, uh, to the end of the year when it, when it's held in, in that dead, dead zone week between, uh, Christmas and New Year's. So, um, I'm going to guess that I'm probably going to have to reduce the prize fund, um, I'm, you know, obviously, um, in fact, uh, uh, kind of a crushing piece of news that I was just listening to before we went on that uh, Governor Cuomo just announced that uh, various analyses by the Bill Gates Foundation and others, uh, some epidemiologists, uh, they believe the peak of, of the uh, cases will occur at the end of April. And that's with us uh, locked down. Uh, uh, um, you know, um, staying in, in, you know, basically almost in, in quarantine status. So that was kind of a stunning, uh, and I, I guess the, the president had mentioned something earlier from, from other analysts of a peak of perhaps up to 100,000 deaths from, from the corona, coronavirus. So uh, this disruption, you know, is, is just uh, everywhere. The only thing I can see uh, as a glimmer of hope is, for example, uh, a local affiliate, DMV, which stands for D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and that's run by uh, Steve Jablon and Josh Hyben. They are offering up, uh, just, I just saw the announcements for uh, online blitz tournaments, not just a regular. And I'm not sure how that's, how that's going to work, but I guess they're going to have to use Skype or something. I, it's really fascinating. I, I, I didn't see any details so I, I I know Steve and Josh and I was thinking of calling them to find out find out just how they're they're going to implement that perhaps on Zoom or Skype or or some other uh, vehicle I assume uh, but anyway it's a fascinating idea so the idea is perhaps we can hold online chess tournaments virtual chess tournaments that, that that's the only the only way out that I can see at the present um, and what about for the other part of her question and for more normal circumstances? Let, let's say you have a major snowstorm that causes you to, to cancel the Eastern Open. Do you have event insurance or some other uh, type of safeguard? Oh, oh, I see. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, I wanted to, did want to mention that anyway. Uh, almost every contract you're going to sign with a hotel, there is a force majeure clause in it. And on either side, if they can't deliver the premises... Or if you know, if there's something like a natural disaster or or a snowstorm, if you can't deliver the players, then basically uh, all bets are off, except for perhaps some minor charges. Now, now my my contracts are unique because uh, 
David uh, Mailer picked the right weekend to settle on for the Eastern Open. It's the dead week for hotels uh, between Christmas and New Year's, and they are delighted to trade uh, conference. That they donate, you know, basically they give me for free all the conference space that I need, plus a couple of uh, free hotel rooms uh, for uh, me trying to generate as many room nights as I possibly can for them. And so it's a it's a real win win. Um, and and oddly enough, though, I don't I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, a lot of the hotel chains, um, for some reason, the management, uh, the, the company, different management companies buy out different uh, hotel chains or portions of hotel chains. And so there's this management turnover every three or four years. And I twice now have had to move because the management, uh, you know, a new management came in and said, oh, this is way too generous. Why the hell are we giving up all this conference space for free? And so then they ask, you know, they, they submit to me, the, uh, you know, I try to do two, three-year uh, contracts and so but uh, you know and so they basically have some contract that's just ridiculous and so I'll end up uh, putting out an announcement to I don't there's some kind of a local I don't know if it's what it is but the hotels uh, what do you call it a hotel uh, um, organization that uh, not just for any one hotel chain but but they they produce these uh Kind of uh, f uh, announcements to their their various clients about you know here's somebody looking f for hotel space, so I had no trouble switching uh, from one hotel to another. So I went from the downtown site out to Bethesda, and then I, I because that that actually that site the Bethesda site didn't really have enough; it was barely had enough space. And so now we're out at the West End near Tyson's Corner, which is a just a great place. And um, but. But having said that, they just had a turnover in, in the management uh, chain. Uh, so we'll see what happens at the end of next year when when that uh, contract ends. Uh, hopefully, it won't require a turnover because, frankly, I think it's the best spot around D.C. And Bill Goichberg did as well. He held a whole year's tournaments there, and I thought they got good turnouts. And then he's moved out, though, to uh, Reston, um, the uh, Marriott out at what Reston. I, I just played in the GW Open, and I was, you know, super lucky to draw against Jesse Cry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like, this is not fun you know, going out there for me. And, and so I, 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 I'm sure Bill had a reason for doing it. He, he's, a, he's a very smart uh, man on, on this topic. And so, anyway, so... Uh, my my only you know, my secret is that that it's I get it's a win win situation that that particular timing of the tournament. Well, well, great. So that's a great answer and a great question, Alexi. Thank you again. And your fifty dollars gift certificate is waiting for you in your inbox. Um, so let's take a giant step backwards uh, in 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 time, Tom, and talk about uh, how you first got into chess, maybe what your very first memory of the game is. Oh, boy, yes. <laughs> I remember, I think it was this junior high school, Stan Sheldon. Um, he uh, said, let's play a game of chess. You know, I said, oh, yeah, okay. And he, he started teaching me the rules and everything. And, and we play a couple games uh, a week. And then by the third week, um, he was beating me consistently, and then after that, he never beat me again. And I just sort of—it was just something he just took to, you know. And um, in some ways, you could say it, it might have been my downfall because uh, I went to UCLA a million years ago, 
and um, I basically managed in chess, poker, and horse racing handicapping uh, with a minor in physics, which I converted to music to get out of there with, <laughs> without flushing out totally. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's been a um, it's been a it's been a wild, wonderful ride. And and the funniest thing happened a few years ago. Somebody came over and they wanted to look up some obscure fact or something in in, a, in an old um, issue of it was either Chess Review or Chess Life from 1969. Um, I'm sorry, 1964, when I graduated uh, from high school. And lo and behold, I couldn't believe what I, I was just flipping through pages and I said, what's this? The LA, LA High School Championship, first place Tom Beckman, 5-0. I had no recollection of this. It was probably my greatest chess achievement of all time. I just like, so my memory is not very good, as you can, <laughs> you can obviously see from this fact. So, uh, but, but, you know, chess has been very good to me. Um, when I, my first job, uh, was, uh, with the IRS and, I was going to be a, a programmer, and frankly, I was really worried about this because I'd taken a course in Fortran at um, UCLA the year before, and I, I barely scraped through with a C, and I, I really didn't understand what, what was going on. And so they they hired me, and, and one of the reasons they hired me was he's a chess player. Oh yeah, he'll do he'll do fine at programming. So um, so anyway, I, I studied my buns off, and, and I did fine. But you know, but it was uh, it was a scary little time there, but. Uh, Chess has been, you know, been a wonderful entree to um, to various things. In my uh, in my uh, academic and work career, I actually got a second chance. I worked for IRS my entire career, and started off as a programmer, became a systems analyst. Um, then um, somewhere in mid career, uh, 1984, they were looking. They they wanted to IRS wanted to get a, a capability in, in artificial intelligence of all strange things. And so uh, they were looking for people to that they thought would do well, and uh, I happened to be one of the lucky ones uh, selected. And uh, they were going to send me to Texas Tech, and I did some research and found out Texas Tech doesn't have any, any real uh, program or anything; it's just a few courses. So I said, "Gee, how about uh, MIT?" And they said, uh, "We looked at your transcript. Are you crazy? <laughs> you got a 2.3 average." And I said, "Look." That was then. This is now. I promise you, you, you will not regret it. So um, I was so fortunate that they did choose me. Uh, I got a straight A average. I actually got uh, my name mentioned in, in, in a thank you in the book by Marvin Minsky, uh, Society of Mind. <laughs> so I, I did terrifically. And the only secret to that was that I, I, I spent 14, 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week, uh, for two years, and and I only played chess uh, about five times during that period. <laughs> One of which was to uh, play the MacHack Six program, which was a truly awful program. But <laughs> but at any rate, I was. <laughs> and unfortunately, I wasn't a good enough programmer ever so that I would even attempt to you know to to program a chess program. So so it all worked out really really well. And uh, and also some of my uh, best friends uh, have have been through chess. I, I met Alan Savage. Uh, must have been he, he. We're not quite agreeing, but it must have been a, a tournament in Boston uh, during well the time I was up at MIT. So, so anyway, um, we we've been uh, tight friends ever since, and uh, and he's another opening freak. So we have we have always have lots to talk about. Uh, and then um, 
just it's just been a it's been a wonderful ride. Um, you know, to go to tournaments and, and see friends you haven't seen in uh, a year at the World Open, for example, and. Uh, uh, I, chess has been the, one of the finest uh, things in my life, really. I mean, it's been a, it's just been wonderful. Oh, that's, that's, that's a wonderful, uh, a story. And it, it, it struck me with your MIT story and, and talking your way, uh, into it. It sounded almost like someone, uh, trying to convince a tournament organizer to let them play in a higher section than they're qualified for. Oh, oh, oh um, I'm, I'm not sure. I oh well. Let's see. Well, the I've always not always, but most of the time, one of my delights is is uh, playing really well against really strong players. And so the only way to do that is play in open sections of big tournaments. Used it was they would um, uh, you had a ch- actually had a chance of playing an IM or GM. This is like. 20, 30 years ago in the World Open, I guess, you actually had a chance, you know, I guess when my rating was maybe gotten up to master. So I actually had a chance to play a GM in the first round, which was, you know, just that's one of those things that's a rarity. And, um, yeah, so, uh, and I it, it, I did make that that note in, in this year's uh, Eastern Open that we had more players, a percentage of players playing up uh, a section, at least one section, than ever ever before. We always had maybe twenty to twenty five percent, but this was uh, this was really a phenomenal. It was uh, thirty five, at least thirty five percent played up at least players playing up at least one section. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was kind of stunning. Even even in the uh, under thirteen hundred section, uh, well, the under sixteen hundred section, we had maybe well, I don't think it was like ten twelve players that played up. A section now maybe that's you know maybe that's an effect of the uh, those inter intersection prizes that I the, you know the intermediate prizes that I offer so I I don't know it, I, was that was that the nature of your question because frankly it was I I, I didn't <laughs> I, again you answered it and then you 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 let the uh, answer evolve uh, and and that's perfectly fine I, I it was an interesting discussion now we have just enough time to talk about one other item I mentioned in your in your intro in your bio and that you, that's your teaching curriculum and method uh, why, why don't you expand a little bit about that okay yes. Um, I'm a very probably different method than most other teachers that I've talked with, at any rate, and um, that I'm pretty analytical. Um, I sort of insist on a two-hour minimum, two-hour lesson. Um, we try to cover some tactics, uh, some aspect, a, a positional or middle game aspect, uh, something on openings, uh, play a 15-minute game at the end, uh, and then we both annotate that for the next session. I also give uh, homework and consisting of puzzles, and, and, and now there's so many fine books out there <laughs> that it's easy enough to find uh, uh, positions that, that you know well well selected positions uh, for for every aspect of the game. And um, so, um, I, and I got to say that some of my favorite authors for you know for for my improvement as well as my students are are, are people like Grievous and Franco. And uh, Agard puts out some, some marvelous work, and um, you know, just um, this is just a number of uh, the, the number of great chess books out there for improvement are, are, are just exploding. It's it's, uh, it's it's really kind of a wonderful thing. Um, the, the, 
frankly, I've gotten spoiled because, um, and, and, and I have two good friends now, uh, Lee Blod and his son, Eric Blod. And, and I, they started uh, taking lessons maybe, I don't know, five years ago. And, um, uh, we've, uh, Eric went off to college and he actually made the, uh, the top list of high school players there for a while. So that was, he was probably my best student. And, you know, I, I'm not, uh, frankly, I, I'm not sure that, that my approach produces any better results than, than any, any other instructor. And, and in fact, I'm so, somewhat disappointed in, in the results. And I'm not quite sure why. Um, but, uh, a lot of times I think that it's just, uh, encouraging the player and, and, uh, in ways that en enable them to, to blossom and, and, uh, reach their, their, uh, their, their potential. Um, and it may have less to do with teaching methods, I'm afraid. But, uh, the, the most enjoyable, uh, lessons I've ever, ever had w were with, uh, Lee Blood, the father. And we'd have a Saturday morning session. It would last about five hours. You'd start off with him cooking me a gourmet breakfast, and their dog, Roxy, loved me. He, she always uh, looked forward to, to me coming because uh, they got smoked bacon. She, get, she got smoked bacon along with me. So <laughs> then we'd talk politics for a while, and then, then we'd get in and investing, and then we'd finally move on to chess for about four, three and a half, four hours. And uh, those are just, you know, I, I'm so spoiled now that, frankly, it, it it I probably uh, won't do much teaching in the future. I, I'm just uh, I've got a lot of other uh, other interests that 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 I that I want to uh, expand on too. So that's probably uh, you know that's probably come to a close. Although you never you never know. Uh, I know other friends when they've retired they've uh, they've gone into teaching actively and and they've they've been uh, very happy in doing that. Um, so I wish I knew what the secret was to um, to improving, uh, uh, you know, being able to to be a good teacher. But uh, but I frankly um, a little bit mystified as to what it might be. In fact, I I part of the artificial intelligence uh, work uh, was uh, was in intelligent tutoring systems, and and I never got around to having anybody who I could I could take a framework and then. I was actually going to use an example would be uh, chess and you know ch chess and uh, t t tutoring instruction, and I never could really quite get uh, to the point where I could find you know, a set of examples and then like you know have have the, uh, the student try to solve puzzles and then based on their success or lack thereof or what what you know what the choice of move was or whatever would then be to say okay that that showed me you didn't see this or you need to work on this and that kind of thing which which i think is is the right idea and that's what i, I thought a good teacher does but at any rate um that's where that is <laughs> okay well i i know you said that you're backing off a little bit on teaching now but if, if anybody wants to contact you about uh perhaps setting up lessons or and maybe something about the eastern open what's the best way for them to reach you uh, just Tom Beckman at rcn.com, rogercharlienelson.com. Okay, great. That would probably be the best. Yeah. Oh, can I just say something about the coronavirus? Uh, sure. A little bit more. I I think, you know, the one thing, we're wonderful that, 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 that we play chess. And I want to give my best thoughts and prayers to all the chess players and their families in this time of trepidation. Uh, I want to be sure that you call all your chess friends and make sure they're okay. 
maybe play a game over the phone or by email. As chess players, we have a lot of discipline. We can see threats. We can see defenses. We need to bring our best game to defeating the coronavirus. And, and also, we can, I think we can combat the boredom uh, of being a, uh, quarantined practically or, you know, locked down uh, through chess. At any rate, it, it's, a, it's been a pleasure uh, uh, that you gave me this opportunity, Dan. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a fun, wide-ranging discussion, so thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe, and good luck with this year's Eastern Open. Thank you, Tom Beckman. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the Donate button at the same website. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.7seasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess.